since even before the days of da Vinci, regional rivalries seem to be a part of what it means to be Italian. And, it turns out, even Italy's most cherished saints are tied in with this regional pride. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Since we can't call Francis of Assisi to talk about Umbria or ring up Catherine of Siena to describe her hometown in Tuscany, today on Travel with Rick Steves, we've invited friends from those same regions to tell us why they love their home turf the best. Tuscan is a little bit more sophisticated than Umbria. Tuscan people are more Renaissance. The Umbrian people are more Etruscan people in their soul. In one corner, Cecilia Botai represents Umbria, and in the other, Jamie Blair Gould speaks up for his adopted home of Tuscany. It's the way of life. I get a buzz every time I go to a market. We'll also check in with our listeners for stories about their travels in Italy, especially when a Yankee unwittingly commits a faux pas and what we can learn from our embarrassment. Come along with us as we get better acquainted with Italy in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're learning about two neighboring regions of central Italy, Tuscany and Umbria. They're both rich with medieval hill towns, scenic vineyards, and farmstay B&Bs. But they each boast their own distinct traditions and character. It's a friendly rivalry these days, as each region vies for tourists in search of the quintessence of rural Italy. Joining us in a bit is Cecilia Botai. Her family has cultivated the soil of Umbria for centuries. And Jamie Blair Gould. He's a Brit who moved his family to Lucca in Tuscany. First, let's start with your calls to 877-333-7425. Tell us about your adventures in Italy, especially any faux pas you made as an outsider unaware of local customs and what you learned from it. We're learning from Italy today on Travel with Rick Steves. Joel's on the phone in Monrovia, California. Thanks for your call. Hey, Rick. Thanks. Uh, really big fan of yours. Thank you. Our family uh, had the privilege of staying at a villa outside of Arezzo in Italy, and uh, we decided we wanted to get some fresh vegetables for dinner one night. So first of all, let's let people know, Joel, that Arezzo is a beautiful town one hour south of Florence. It is gorgeous. So we went to the supermarket just outside of town and uh, started picking up and looking at the vegetables and didn't notice until uh, several minutes into our enterprise that everyone else was using plastic food service gloves, whereas we had been, as we would at home, just picking up the vegetables with our bare hands. We got some sideways looks, and that was pretty embarrassing. And then later on, when we tried to check out, we found out that apparently uh, everyone actually weighs and marks their purchases at the supermarket with tags that indicate the weight. So we had to sit there at the cash register while everyone else waited on us yep. and go back and get the tags. You know, that's an embarrassing thing when you go to the, the cashier without weighing your produce. And it's a, a, a real blessing for somebody who's just making a picnic for one because sometimes it's embarrassing just to buy one carrot. But you can put one grape on the bin and you take the number from whatever vegetable or fruit you're buying, and then you tap the number on, it weighs it, it prints out the sticker, and you stick it on the bag or the or the item, and then you go to the it's cashier. It's a brilliant system, yes. and, uh, and we so wish that we had paid more attention to what other people were doing. Uh, well, that's the fun thing about travel, isn't it? You go in there, and you kind of observe and follow, and we're all beginners, and it's just, it's just kind of refreshing to be a steep on the learning curve. Were customers wearing these plastic clubs or just the uh, the staff? No, the, the customers, uh, next to every bin, there was uh, a little dispenser for them. And so when customers wanted to basically pick up a peach okay. and feel, they would put on a plastic glove. All over Europe, different uh, produce merchants are very touchy about uh, tourists touching the produce. So you got to kind of look around and make sure you're, um, you're doing it right. Pay more attention. <laughs> <laughs> That's the lesson we learned. Good tip, Joel. And uh, thank you very much for your call. Thank you. And Roger's on the line in Gig Harbor, Washington. Roger, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick. Got something to share about uh, a faux pas maybe you've committed on the road. Yeah, we were, uh, last month we were in uh, in Europe trying to get from Italy up to France and through Italy. And there was a lot fewer people that spoke English at the train stations than we thought. Uh, we, we were having a, a very difficult time, uh, even at the big stations, and, and then someone told us that we were asking to go to Monte Rosa instead of Monte Rosso. And Monte Rosa is in the Swiss Alps. Oh, so, my goodness. So you were, you were trying to go to a town on the Italian Riviera called Monte right. Rosso, 
Right. And they thought you wanted to go to the mountain in Switzerland called Monte Rosa. Correct. Did they sell you a ticket to Monte Rosa? (laughs) No, I didn't get that far. You were lucky. It could have been a real mess. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We finally got it straightened out and... And made it to the to Cinque Terre. You know, it's it's important for travelers not to be uh, thinking, oh, this is pretty embarrassing and is this a stupid question. You really need to confirm where you're going or you can have all sorts of avoidable mistakes that are very time and money consuming, aren't they? Yeah. In my own travels, I know it's confusing when you're in Germany because there's Frankfurt. There's two Frankfurts. There's Frankfurt on the Odor River and there's Frankfurt on the Main River. Mm-hmm. So you have to say Frankfurt on Main. And, and sometimes they will clarify that, and other times they'll just assume. I, yeah. I, there's also the confusion of different uh, languages for names. Munich, for instance, in I, I think in Italy, is called Monaco. Mm-hmm. And you see a lot of Italians in Munich, in Bavaria, walking around with a guidebook to a city called Monaco. <laughs> and, and you think, don't they know they're not in Monte Carlo? But that's the Italian way to say Munich. And uh, I was just in Helsinki, and 10% of Helsinki speaks Swedish, and they call that town Helsingfors. So there's... Uh, all sorts of potential confusion. I know when people go south from Naples, they get Sorrento and Salerno confused a lot. And mm-hmm. Salerno is a horrible city, and Sorrento is your limoncello paradise on the Amalfi Coast, you know. So uh, you got to make sure you get those uh, proper nouns cor- correct and pronounce them clearly. Yeah. Well, I hope you enjoyed Monterozzo. It was beautiful. We wish we could have stayed there longer. It was a favorite part of our trip. You might have enjoyed Monte Rosa also, but I think Monte Rosa is hard to beat. That's the that's the Cinque Terre, right? Right. Oh yeah, good. Hey, well, thanks for your tip. All right. Okay. Bye now. Bye. We're checking in with our listeners on Travel with Rick Steves with reports of sometimes embarrassing faux pas experienced while visiting Italy. Eight seven seven three 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 Rick. That's our phone number. Radio at RickSteves.com is the email address. And Karen's on the line in Reading, Massachusetts. Hi, Karen. Thanks for your call. In your Italy 2009 guidebook, you said that the train stopped in Verena only a short time and to be ready to get off. So consequently, by the time we had left the previous station, we were up at the door, luggage in hand, and the train stopped, and we were on what we thought was the platform side. And as you had also mentioned, the train doors did not open. Well, we tried all the handles. We pounded. We were like, well, how are we going to get off? We're going to have to go to the next town and backtrack. This is ridiculous. What's going on? And this kind little old Italian lady saw us from the next car, and she got up and pointed to the doors behind us. So I think what we learned (laughs) is in a situation like that, maybe I should have been at one door and my husband at the other door to see which one would open because we were at the wrong wrong side. We thought we were on the side with the platform, but yeah. obviously we were not. <laughs> and in a case like Verena, that's a little town with a big train, and half of the train <laughs> doesn't fit onto the platforms proper, so you could look out on either side and it looks like there's nothing there. So it is a little confusing, and thank goodness that lady came to your rescue. Right. Otherwise, we would have been at the next town up the line. Yeah. I notice in a lot of trains, in the local language, they'll say, you'll be exiting on the left or you'll be exiting on the right. But right. it's a point of confusion for me also. And uh, also you, you have to open the door yourself sometimes. And that takes quite a bit of, um, of heft to push those. It looks like an emergency bar down yes, and it push does. it out. And then the metal steps come down. And it's uh, you've got to know what you're doing sometimes. So I would say uh, feel free to ask for help. And uh, as a traveler, local people will come to your rescue and they'll get a good, right. laugh. They'll get a good <laughs> laugh out of it too. So they, the, they did. <laughs> the people who are happiest travelers are those who can laugh along with them. <laughs> That's absolutely right. But you made it out in Verena. We did. But when we caught the train back to Milan from Verena, uh, we had to open the doors ourselves to get on. Oh, yeah, and climb up those steep stairs. They didn't open automatically when the train stopped. (laughs) Yeah, well, now, um, Verena, by the way, for our listeners, is uh, just a romantic little tiny village on a beautiful freshwater Lake Como, one of the most romantic, relaxing places that I can think of in Italy. And it's just one hour north of Milano. So I I like to think of people who are flying into Milan to spend their jet lag time in Verena Mm. on Lago di Como. Tell me just one little image you, you remember of Verena once you got into the town. Golly, that's, that's difficult because there's so much. There's the, the walkway that goes along the lake, the promenade, passerella. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's beautiful. We were staying right on the lake at La Torretta. We just 
love the sight of the boats on the lake. It's relaxing to sit there in an outdoor cafe or on your balcony right. and just watch the meta- exactly. the business metabolism of the lake breathing in and out. There's boats coming and going and the locals and the tourists. They call it Luna de Mila town. That That's the honeymoon town. Ah. Well, Karen, I'm glad you got off the train. Thanks so much for your call. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, happy travels. Thank you. Bye-bye. And uh, Tom is on the line in Newport Beach, California. Hi, Tom. Thanks for your call. It's going really well. Do you have a story you can share that uh, where we can all learn from your uh, faux pas overseas? When I was an architecture student in Italy, I knew I was going to get uh, fish and peach mixed up, pesce and pesca. And sure enough, the first day I was there, I walked into a gelateria and asked for pesce ice cream, fish ice cream. Oh, so no. I'm sure that might have been on the menu somewhere, but the gentleman uh, suggested that the pesca would be better. <laughs> he's probably so, heard that. Uh, I bet he's heard it before from tourists. Yeah, I'm sure you would. All right. Well, hey, thanks for your call. Well, remember, how do you say peach instead of fish? Pesce and pesca. Pesce <laughs> as in it's fish and pesca would be peach. I don't care how good the gelato is. Fish gelato is just not going to cut it. Well, I'm sure that they can do everything really well, so I'm sure that even they can make fish gelato taste good knowing the Italians. More likely there than in England. Okay, Tom, thanks. Yeah, that's right. All okay. right, thanks. Yep. Bye. And Robin's on the line in Millersville, Maryland. Robin, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. I was calling to uh, talk, just tell you about a funny story that I had from a trip my husband and I took to Italy on one of our first trips in Europe. We were uh, exploring, we were backpacking, taking the railroad everywhere, and decided to explore Verona and stay there for a night. Uh, we found a nice pension and uh, checked in, handed over our passports after sightseeing all day. And the next morning, when we got up at 5 a.m. to catch our 7 a.m. train, we got up and went out to the front desk area only to find it was very dark and very quiet and nobody was around. And so we started ringing the bell and no one came. So then we started walking around saying, hello, hello. And then the owner finally came out, hair messed up, in his pajamas. He was staying, he was living right there <laughs> and uh, was very annoyed. And we told him that we had a 7 a.m. train to catch and we needed our passports. And he said, it's 6 o'clock in the morning. Okay. And we said, we're very sorry, but, you know, we have to leave and we need our passports. It's 6 o'clock in the morning. And so he turned, he handed us our passports and went back to bed. Presumably. And you learned the difference between a little family-run guest house and a hotel. Absolutely. <laughs> That's a good advice, Robin. You know, if you're leaving early, it's just wise to be uh, anticipating that the night before because you can actually find yourself in some hotels where the door is locked and sometimes it's hard to even get out. And uh, you want to let them know you're leaving early and pick up your passport and settle the bill the night before. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Robin, for the tip. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye now. To help us better understand Italy, next we'll compare the allure of two neighboring regions of central Italy, Tuscany and Umbria. Our guests, Jamie Blair Gould from Lucca and Cecilia Botai from Orvieto. They'll explain what makes their regions distinctive, as well as fun to explore. It's your choice too, Tuscany or Umbria, today on Travel with Rick Steves. Italy must be the most popular European destination for Americans, and everybody's wild about the hill towns of Tuscany and Umbria, the countryside charm of Italy, and we all think of Tuscany and Umbria together. But they're different. Today we're going to compare and contrast Tuscany and Umbria, and we're joined by an Umbrian, Cecilia Botai, who, with her family, makes wine in Umbria, just across the canyon from Orvieto, and Jamie Blair Gould, who's an Englishman who has adopted Tuscany as his home province of Italy. Jamie and Cecilia, thanks for joining us. Thanks for thanks, calling sir. us. Jamie, you live in Tuscany, and Cecilia, you live in Umbria. In a nutshell, how would you characterize the differences between these two regions of Italy? Cecilia. Well, they have a quite different history. I would say that Umbria is, uh, 
I could use a more polite uh, description or a less polite. Be less polite. Uh, less polite would be more rustic. Okay. It's more genuine, I would say. Uh, um, Florence is, uh, Florence, sorry, Tuscan is a little bit more sophisticated than Umbria. The Umbrian people are more Etruscan in their soul. The uh, Tuscan people are more Renaissance people in their soul. So this is what makes the, the two regions so different. Is this related in historical uh, economy? Is, is Umbria historically uh, poorer and uh, Tuscany historically wealthier? I would say different because we didn't have the Medici family. We right. had St. Francis, which yeah. were based on totally different... Uh, well, St. Francis lifestyle. celebrated poverty and the Medici celebrated wealth. Well, wait a Jamie minute. Blair Gould, how would you characterize the difference between Tuscany and Umbria? Well, I think um, that Umbria has often been known as Tuscany's little sister. Um, in some ways, it's more charming. I think the, the hills are higher, the rivers row faster. It's very, very green. Um, but I think one of the key differences is that uh, Tuscany was run by powerful families. And we must remember the Medici are purely in, in uh, Florence. Mm-hmm. And uh, each of those towns had their families as well. West Umbria was run by, uh, it was a papal state. And so uh, the church was very much involved. And not just St. Francis, but the, the Il Vaticano. Isn't that interesting? Because I remember being in Cortona, standing on the bluff in Cortona, looking south with my friend in Cortona, which is in Tuscany, in right? Tuscany, yes. And he said, this is a very important boundary right here because... Tuscany and everything north was one realm, and then everything south was papal states. Correct. Yeah. So that's a real cultural dividing point in Europe. Absolutely. And even today, it has a it has a, a heritage. How is that heritage? Well, as I said, they are much more uh, rustic people, less less inclined to just the economy, but more into human things. This is why I mentioned Saint Francis, because it's not a matter of poverty of considering. The consideration for the life, not just uh, the wealth. While in Tuscany, they were a little bit more sophisticated. They were showing a little bit more elegance and things like this. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Tuscany and Umbria, the most popular regions of Italy. And how do we compare and contrast these? I'm joined by Cecilia Botai, representing the Umbrian team, and Jamie Blair Gould, who is uh, from Tuscany in the beautiful town of Lucca. Jamie, your accent is not... Really very Italian. Oh, you noticed. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, I'm from Britain originally, from England, from Bath, in fact. I've been uh, touring uh, with my company down in Tuscany for a long time and then just decided eight years ago to to bite the bullet and pick up my Belgian wife and my two children and uh, move to Tuscany. And following a long line of other people, I think they refer to Chianti as Chianti Shire now. Chianti Shire. A lot of Englishmen there. Down there. And uh, we're in Luca, yes. Okay. Now you're raising a couple of kids in Luca. Uh, Yes, yes. How how is it for an Englishman to be raising kids in Italy? I really like it there. It's also a lot more relaxed. Mm -hmm. And to bring up children, I think it's particularly pleasant. Now you come from perhaps the most beautiful town in England, Bath, and you're staying in what a lot of people think is one of the most beautiful towns in Italy, Luca. Well, there are two differences, the the weather and the food. (laughs) In both cases, I think I'd go for Luca. (laughs) <laughs> That's why I'm there. Duh. Now, one thing, one thing very uh, unique and exciting about Luca is this uh, early modern age uh, wall around the town that actually provides a, a pleasant uh, walking uh, route or a bike path elevated. And it's more than just a wall. It is really the soul of the, the city because uh, historically Luca was the only town that wasn't taken over by Florence, the Medici. The reason was because this wall was built. It was the state-of-the-art architecture at the time, and the Florentines never felt strong enough to be actually take Luca. Is that right? So you get a lot of that Luca pride because it never had to house a Medici prince. Right? Uh, absolutely. In fact, even within Luca itself, there's a big um, distinguishment between the people that were born within the walls and uh, those born outside so the walls. Inside those walls. Now, these are not just your typical medieval castle walls. I mean, there are a dime a dozen around here, but these are, what, Louis the Fourteenth Th- age? These are what they, well, these are what they call Renaissance walls. So Renaissance they, walls. They, they, um, they actually took uh, 100 years between mid... Uh, um, 1500s and mid-1600s to build. And uh, as they were being built, they were updated all through that period of time. Now, they feel quite squat and thick uh, because of the age of uh, artillery? Or uh, that right? Well, that's why they had to be rebuilt. I mean, with the uh, advent of ballistic warfare, suddenly it wasn't a question of standing on top of a big tall wall and throwing a, a hot pitch and uh, firing arrows down at people. You actually had to absorb uh, ballistic warfare, cannibals, etc. Just a pounding of cannibals. So, um, so when you look all over Europe, if you see a, a tall... Uh, towering castle that's likely before the age of uh, these ballistic uh, 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 yeah, ca- bombardments yes. from cannon. And they, then if you have a squat and very thick walls like you'll find in Luca, Then uh, it's um, from this later period. 
Now, those uh, risks are long gone, and today the city is really taking advantage of this uh, remnant of a military fortification. Well, A, because uh, the Luke was lucky enough to have a couple of uh, uh, ladies in charge of it, including uh, Napoleon's sister. They decided to turn it into a park. And I think the other reason is because it was, um, quite honestly, it was just too difficult to take down. Yeah, all over Europe you have circular boulevards that are from medieval walls that were taken down. You could not really take down these. Uh, these walls must be 50 meters wide. The, exactly, at the base, uh, 30 meters, 100 foot. And yeah. then uh, you now uh, very easy to rent a bicycle or take a stroll and go all around the city. It's one of the, the most beautiful things to do in Tuscany, I think, to cycle the walls of Lucca. I don't think there's anywhere in Europe where I've actually required people with my guidebook to rent a bike and take this trip, except Luca. This is really a, a key uh, sort of experience when you're in that beautiful town. Yeah, it's it's totally unique experience. You're cycling around. It's about a, a three-mile circumference. You're looking in at the towers, uh, including a couple of towers with trees on the top. You're looking out at the uh, Carrara Marble Mountains, and uh, uh, it's just just wonderful. Now, when you're thinking of beautiful walks around beautiful towns, uh, Cecilia, just across the canyon from your house, there's Orvieto, of course, standing majestically on top of this sort of a volcanic plug, uh, which gives it a natural fortification. I was just there last year, and they've uh, the city has gotten together and made a beautiful paved pedestrian path around the city at the base of the cliff. Yes. Uh, this is just to make people understand, I mean, enjoy a little better what it's uh, Orvieto, what used to be Orvieto, and to have the feeling of Orvieto. You have to go back... Uh, into the centuries where Orvieto was was first not even built because underneath Orvieto there is Orvieto. This is where the Etruscans used to live. And then there was the second city built on top of the first city. So to build that was to give the possibility to people to really understand what happened with the passing of time and have the feeling because you know that unfortunately or fortunately nowadays we have cars and you cannot live without them. But it's nice to have the possibility to explore part of the city where you can walk like people used to do in the Middle Ages. It's funny you mentioned cars because uh, every dimension of Italy that so charms me happens to be fiat-free. Fiat-free Italy. You get up on Luca's Wall, there's not a sense of any cars. You go down to the base of the cliffs of Orvieto and you get to walk all around the town for an hour with just the sounds of the birds of Umbria. And then you come upon this Etruscan necropolis, yeah. a city of the dead. And it is literally a city of the dead. It's got a grid plan of streets, and you've got little homes almost for tombs. And this is from 500 B.C. And it's a reminder that Tuscany may be from the word Etruscan, uh, but Umbria has a lot of Etruscan uh, remnants and tombs and, and so on as well. Yeah, uh, and it's a pity that many people do not know very much about this kind of civilization, which was, in fact, a very highly civilized population, and they made fantastic jewelry. We still copy from them, fantastic pottery. They had a very good fishing system in Bolsena, which is a lake which is no more in Umbria till Lazio. They still make the boats with the same shape of the Etruscan people. So this is uh, this says it all. But apparently they didn't leave much writing or accounts of their civilization. Uh, Jamie, isn't all we know about the Etruscans, what we've uh, unearthed from their tombs? Well, we're learning a lot more from it, but um, uh, it was once said that all uh, Etruria was a tomb, and that's because we're learning basically from graveyards. If we learned about our civilization purely from Christian graveyards, what would we take? No, so about as of, much as we know about the Etruscans. And now. most of the um, the writings we have are um, grave inscriptions, which don't tell you a lot. And by the way, in Volterra, there's a wonderful Etruscan museum filled with funerary urns where they put the, the ashes of the Etruscan deads, and they're covered with beautiful inscriptions, and it's just quite a fa- All over, in many places, Orvieto, in Rome, uh, you've got plenty of opportunities to get into Etruscan civilization. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. And Elaine's on the phone in Orlando, Florida. Elaine, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi. Do you have a comment or a, a question for Jamie or Cecilia? Yes, I, I love the contrast between the two areas, having been to both Umbria and Tuscany, and, and I agree, the hills, the rolling hills of Tuscany are wonderful, and you've got to get out and explore and just get in the car and head to a little town and experience the cuisines of each of the towns because they're so unique. And what is your favorite? Oh, I think Pienza is my favorite, having been there several times. It's just a cute little town tucked away in the hills and overlooking the beautiful you know, fertile valleys below, just beautiful. And the pecorino cheeses and the olive oil and the wines are just spectacular in that area. And every little cutesy shop in Pienza seems to be selling pecorino cheese. Oh, my gosh, yes. Yes, they are. But then you have to get off the beaten path and head head out where the tourists don't go. And what was your highlight in that regard? 
I think heading over to the coast, not too many people know that Tuscany's got, you know, the beach line there along the sea and the uh, ferries that go to Elba and mm. along um, along the shoreline there, just beautiful. The trees and the, the hills and the castle ruins along the Tuscan coast was, was just a beautiful getaway from the cities and the tourists. Unless you happen to go to Via Reggio on the coast and you'll meet millions of Italian teenagers in their cars that just goes along the beach. Jamie, what's your take on the on the coastline of Tuscany? I think it's quite beautiful, uh, particularly the southern part. Right. Um, it's also a fantastic wine area, some of the best wines in Italy as far as I'm concerned. There's something about that uh, uh, coastal air, I think, that makes the uh, Sangiovese so good. Now, Elaine, did you go to Volterra? What was your take on Volterra? Because that's a particularly, I think, underappreciated uh, hill town in Tuscany. Oh, yes. I absolutely loved Volterra. It, was, it is like a hidden gem because most people go to San Gimignano up, up the way. And Volterra was just um, beautiful. It's approach steep up a hill, but up, up at the top of that hill, the views of the fields and the valleys below were just spectacular. And you wander the streets, and it's, it was not that crowded. And this is the peak of the summer I was there. Not that crowded. The cute alabaster shops. And then, of course, catching the sunset on the wall outside the city as, as the sun casts its beautiful colors on the fields below. Just a beautiful town. It sounds like you were swept away in a romantic way with Volterra. Did you connect with its vampire heritage? <laughs> no, I didn't, but it, it was, it's all around, and it's being promoted in the bookshops and the, and the tourist uh, per, you know, stuff. Jamie, do you know about the vampire heritage? Oh, having two teenage daughters for certain. Tell it, warn us about Volterra. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I don't think the people in Volterra are terribly pleased because they were hoping to cash in on this, and... Um, the I think it's Montepulciano. The whole thing was filmed in yeah. instead. I think because well, they the, have more. The, what is it called? The new moon. The, the, that's correct. I, think, I believe that's it. It's yes. set in Volterra, but because of negotiation problems, uh, they ended up be, not filming it. There, <laughs> very Italian. Montepulciano. Montepulciano. Yeah, the town square in Montepulciano is used in the movie. Okay, there we go. But you know, uh, when you go to Volterra, you'll find it has all of these references back in Dante's Cliffs of Hell and so on. And and I was just sitting there enjoying the bats on the on the main square. The town is spooky after dark, and yes. when you look at it from a distance, the the clouds kind of cut it off, and it almost floats there like some sort of a you know fancy mysterious city from some netherworld. I understand back in the 1970s, Cecilia, wasn't there a, a TV horror show that was based in Volterra? Do you know about this? Uh, I don't know very much, but I know what there was. Yeah. Yeah. You weren't uh, you weren't watching TV back in the seventies. <laughs> not exactly. <laughs> Elaine, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. And Jake is on the line in Bend, Oregon. Jake, thanks for your call. You bet, Rick. Good to talk to you. Any thoughts for Cecilia or Jamie? I just wanted to say how much I loved Umbria. Um, I was there last October, and it was my first trip to Italy. The rural character of Umbria, I just thought was so enjoyable. We um, had access to a little apartment in Spello, mm. and we used Spello sort of as a, a, a base and just did day trips out and spent a day in Gubbio, a day in Orvieto, which really I wished I could have spent two or three days in Orvieto. I thought Orvieto was amazing. Um, let's see, spent a day in Perugia, so you liked the rustic, Cecilia uh, was politely calling it rustic, the, the rough edges of Umbria compared to the more touristy and maybe sophisticated and affluent Tuscany. For, for me, that's what I love. And that's the charm that a lot of people appreciate about Umbria. And, and I'm afraid a lot of people are enamored with Tuscany, and, they, and they, they don't realize that maybe their dream is more fulfilled, or at least as well fulfilled, in Umbria with a, with a few less tourists. Well, the one thing that we found is that even in a tiny town like Spello, there would be a half a dozen churches that would be medieval or Renaissance with really some charming frescoes and absolutely no people. We, we had Gubbio to ourselves, the two of us. I, I swear there was not another tourist in the town. And what I like is you go to these towns and, you know, you can see the works of Donatello in Florence, but you go to some little two-bit town with not much wealth or tourists, and they've got art that they just treasure in their humble little church from the school of Donatello. And it's also that church is used every day. We were able to go to a, a mass in Orvieto, which was a real treat to be able to come in and actually, you know, celebrate the mass with the locals surrounded by this amazing art that's just part of their everyday lives. It is part of their everyday life. It, it enriches their days from when they go to church to when they go to the market to when they walk under their bell tower. That was one of the highlights was just going to the market in Umbria. For the most part, very little English spoken, and uh, my Italian is, is very poor. I took six months of intensive Italian before going, 
but I found that the people in Umbria were very appreciative of any effort that I made to communicate in Italian. Jake, let's talk about going to the market for a minute with Jamie and Cecilia. Cecilia, take us to the market in Umbria. Well, it's a, it's a, once again, it's a very local experience. You still have people coming with the products from the kitchen garden. They sell it to you in a very simple way, and you really get the best products uh, done in a very simple but healthy way. So it's a nice experience, and they offer you, they speak with the hands, you have the animals around, they sell you the little chickens. Uh, or and you could buy pecorino cheese from a woman who knows the sheep that made the cheese. No, who, the woman who probably took the milk from the sheep. That's the, that's the real McCoy. Jamie, from uh, Tuscany, take us to the market. You live uh, in Luca, a beautiful place. With a beautiful absolutely. Market. I, I think the thing about the markets is, uh, like anywhere else, it's just a m- more fulfilling experience anyway, going and uh, choosing it than going to the supermarket. It's the way of life. I get a buzz every time I go to a market. It's uh, Now, you're a, you're somewhat of a, you're not somewhat, you are a gourmet uh, eater and cooker, and you take gourmet uh, tours, isn't that Correct, right? yes. We run private parties uh, in glorious regions like Tuscany and Umbria, Part of the experience is going to the markets and uh, eating it, and it's really a house party for small groups. In Cecilia, your family uh, has, for six generations, made Orvieto Classico wine. What's the name of your winery? Tenuta Le Velette, that would pronounced, uh, be pronounced Le Velette by uh, non-Italian people. Tenuta Le Velette. And we'll yeah. have that information on our website. Hey, Jake, any other thoughts? Oh, let's see. We did uh, rent an apartment in Spello, and that was great. We had the kitchen... Right there, so we could go to the market, buy the stuff at the market, so bring you had it back a, you, to our apartment and prepare it right And there. you had a rental car, I would imagine, because that's one place, uh, exploring Tuscany, Umbria, where you'd like to have that mobility of a, of a rental car. And I did want to say that was not a problem. I was worried about driving in, in Umbria, and it was not a problem at all. It's a delight to drive in Umbria and Tuscany, especially if you've been driving in Florence or Rome. <laughs> or Ireland. <laughs> or Ireland, okay. Yes. Hey, Jake from Bend, Oregon, thanks for your call. Thank you. Eight seven seven three 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 Rick. That's our phone number. There's more as we compare Umbria and Tuscany in just a moment, and hear your travel reports about Central Italy. It's travel with Rick Steves. Io sono Lisa Anderson e abito in Nord Italia, in Piemonte, e io viaggio con Rick Steves. That's Italian for my name is Lisa Anderson, and I live in northern Italy in the region of Piemonte, Piedmont, and I travel with Rick Steves. Io sono Lisa Anderson, di Nord Italia, io abito in Piemonte, e io viaggio con Rick Steves. Grazie. Grazie a te. Jamie Blair Gould and Cecilia Botai are our guests from Tuscany and Umbria today as we learn about the sights and character of these two neighboring and picturesque regions of Italy. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're traveling through Tuscany and Umbria with the help of two locals. Cecilia Botai uh, lives with her family and makes wine in Umbria near Orvieto. And Jamie Blair Gould is from Lucca in Tuscany. 
Tom's on the line from San Diego, California. Tom, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick. Uh, nice to speak with you. Yeah. Very, very interesting conversation uh, comparing Tuscany and uh, Umbria. So I'm uh, thinking about retiring in a year or two, and I was wondering um, what would it be like for someone to go there kind of long-term, maybe for a few months, and uh, stay in that area? What would the uh, mechanics be as far as... Um, places to stay and how to get around. Well, Jamie has not retired there, but he's moved there, and I, he knows a, that, a lot yeah. of expats that have done just what you might be dreaming about doing. Uh, Jamie, any thoughts? Uh, I think, hi, hi Tom. Um, hi. Uh, I think it would, you'd, for a start, it would be a very enriching experience, and I think my advice would be to, uh, uh, to try it to start with. I think I would rent a house maybe for a month, and there are some terrific uh, rental houses, uh, including on Cecilia's estate, and um, you could rent a house there and rent a car, um, lease a car maybe for a month and uh, you really try it out. Take some language lessons while you're there. Somehow it seems easier to do when you're in situ uh, with a nice glass of uh, Orvieto Classico in your hand. And, and really, uh, you, you, you'll understand there are frustrations. Uh, Italy is uh, renowned for its um, interesting bureaucracy. How, how was your uh, Italian before you went there, Jamie? Um, uh, not very good. And I'd like to say it was uh, perfect now, but uh, it isn't. But my daughters speak perfectly, having gone through the Italian education system. Now, Tom, are you thinking of taking an extended vacation or actually relocating and, and buying a place and, and uh, becoming an expat? Well, actually, it would probably be an extended vacation initially, although I didn't understand that you might be talking about relocating at some other time. Well, I think the danger of an extended vacation is it might really become so extended that you become you find yourself an expat. I know a lot of people that that's happened to. And one thing when you're thinking about an extended stay in Tuscany or Umbria, I would think are the incredible, uh, beautiful agriturismos. That would be renting by the, by the week, I think. All over this region, you've got agriturismos. I was just doing some research trying to find some good agriturismos to recommend, and I found that they are very creative and hardworking and sharing the local culture with their guests in a lot of cases. And it's sort of a cultural, educational experience as well as an economic place to stay. Uh, Cecilia, can you talk about the agriturismos in Umbria a little bit? Yeah, all of them are uh, ex-farmhouses uh, that have been renovated. And most of them are larger or smaller, but all have the equipment and the facilities you need to live in them as if you were home. The only thing they will not have is a dryer because we don't have dryers in Italy. So do be prepared for that. Do I understand the word agriturismo? It's sort of a small farm that's renting out rooms, and to get the title agriturismo, it still needs to be a functioning farm? So the thing is the farm mustn't necessarily be small, but you have to prove that what you work in terms of hours for the agriturismo is less than what you work in your farm uh, for the wine, for the, for the agricultural part. So this is all you need to become an agriturismo membership. So there's countryside guest houses, yeah, countryside but there's also guest house. genuine agriturismos. Jamie, any thoughts on yeah. agriturismos in Tuscany? No, I think, I think um, they're very well documented these days. Depends what the experience is. What I see is that there are two types. There are those which are basically hotels, small hotels that are based on farms. And there are those that really give you a farm experience where all the food, everything comes from the farm. And you can really actually experience what it is to like on a, a living, working farm. And I would say there's a huge variety of experiences and qualities. And uh, a lot of them are advertised on the web. And uh, as a consumer, you need to do your work because you could commit yourself to a mediocre experience or a magical, life-changing experience. Hey, uh, Tom, I hope that gives you some ideas. Thank you very much. One question about that is, are the people that stay there encouraged to work at the farm, or is it just a place to stay? No, it's just a place to stay. Okay. I think uh, a lot of people dream about that. I know in uh, uh, a lot of the people all over Europe, when they have these sort of countryside experiences, they just think, no, the last thing we want is a tourist out there in the field, you know, <laughs> because then they're going to learn more about hospitals than uh, the local culture. Thanks, Tom. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Rick. You bet. Goodbye now. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Cecilia Botai from Umbria and Jamie Gould from Tuscany. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. And Rod's on the phone in Bellingham, Washington. Rod, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Thoughts for uh, Cecilia or Jamie? For Jamie, uh, we had a wonderful experience in uh, Cusi. It was a town on the rail line north of Rome that we picked uh, basically by sticking our finger on the map. We needed to be as close to Rome as possible for the next phase of our trip, and it turned out to be one of the best places we stayed in a month in Europe. We got off at the train station, and a little Italian taxi man uh, was able to 
understand enough of our broken Italian to get us up onto the old uh, city and the hill. The only hotel up there, apparently, is this uh, Albergo La Sfinge, the Sphinx. And Roberto was a wonderful host for us, my wife and, and two daughters. We stayed there three days and just had a fantastic time in, in a town that apparently is a tourist destination for Italians, but not so much for foreigners. So we had very quiet streets and uh, lovely local restaurants and was interested to hear about the Etruscan uh, attractions in Italy because we were totally taken off guard by the wonderful museum there, the National Etruscan Museum in QC. And then the tunnels underneath, my daughters particularly liked that afternoon. It was a very, very hot day. And uh, we went down into the, the old water tunnels that the Etruscans built under the city, uh, basically making themselves siege-proof. <laughs> Jamie, any comments on that? Well, you're right there on the border between Tuscany and Umbria as well. You're almost straddling the border at QZ, and it is one of the uh, the major Etruscan towns, and uh, some, somewhere I like to go to as a lot as well. Uh, you eat well there, that's for sure. And you are impressed by the uh, engineering of the Etruscans. I mean, they've tunneled everywhere. They've got these... Uh, everywhere I go when I'm in Orvieto, the whole mountain is honeycombed with Etruscan caves. Yeah, I could call it an Etruscan creation. What I've done is really amazing. You think that they have done it B.C., I mean, I don't know if we'll ever be able to do something like what they did nowadays. So that's uh, high engineering. So that's kind of fun for the kids, isn't it, uh, Rod? Oh, they had a blast. That was one of the nicest places for a family because there were so many different things. We took a day bus to Montepulciano, and the girls got to do shopping, and we did the underground tunnel thing. And one day our our hotel host uh, drove us over to Lake Trasimeno, and we swam uh, in this wonderful warm lake. So, And your home base was Kiusi, is that pronounced correctly? Kiusi. C-H-I-U-S-I. Right. Very convenient with the train station, just a quick shot north of Rome. Yes, the next morning we were in Rome by about 9.30 in the morning, I think. That's a beautiful thing. Thanks, Rod. Thank you. Mike's on the phone in Oxford, Ohio. Mike, thanks for your call. Hello. I spent uh, a week in Florence, uh, at the end of November and the beginning of uh, December, and we took day trips from Florence, and one was we took the train to Poggibonsi and then the bus out to San Gimignano and spent the day. My uh, daughter had done some re- reading about Etruscan sites, and so she suggested we try this, and it turned out to be a, a magical experience. Even though you were there in the winter and even though you were going to a very touristy town? There weren't many tourists there. So this was, in, was a, you said, de- early December? Yes, for first week in December. See, in the middle of the summer, San Gimignano is just inundated with tourists, and it's frankly hard to enjoy it. I like to go to San Gimignano in the evening, to side trip in in the evening. All the tourists are gone, even in the peak of season. It's quite nice and quite cool. But daytime in the summer, I'd avoid it. But in the off-season, you were there in December, just bundle up and uh, you can enjoy it. It was a, a warm day, probably in the high 50s. And the sun was out, just gorgeous weather. The travel was fine. We didn't have a car, so uh, we tried to organize these day trips. One day we went to, uh, took the train to La Spezia and then a bus to La Ricci. But the uh, trip to San Gimignano was just a wonderful day. Now, the, the towers are striking in San Gimignano, aren't they? Oh, yes. And there was a courtyard outside uh, the church museum with um, frescoes that date quite far back, and they're just amazing to look at. So we're talking about San Gimignano, G-I-M-I-G-N-A-N-O, and of course we're thinking about a town that is just bristling with a medieval skyline, all those towers that are still standing. Did your, did your kids enjoy that? It was majestic. Um, we were able to go up uh, on one of the towers, on the, uh, it's probably on the west side of town, and uh, look back across, and you could see on the vista all the other towers. Well, San Gimignano is the one town that has a well-preserved skyline of medieval towers. My understanding was, in the Middle Ages, almost all the towns were bristling with towers of noble families, towers within the city walls. Jamie, what's the, what's the, the reason for that, if you go back historically? Well, purely defensive. You can think of them as being like uh, urban castles, if you will. Uh, some of them were built by um, wealthy families. Others were by people who were escaping from feudal overlords, came into town and just built upwards 
uh, because, of course, the um, as long as you had a high tower, you could actually hurl great rocks from the roof, and uh, even the best-equipped army couldn't take you. Might it relate to, uh, in Verona, you would have, for instance, we all know from Romeo and Juliet, the Montagues and the Capulets, two rich families within the walls that would be fighting each other? Well, what happened then was that there was a, d- a division between two people, those who supported the uh, the nobility, if you will, because they own their position to the nobility, the wealthy families, and those who um, uh, were against those, and they looked for another uh, titular head, if you were, and obviously the Pope was the obvious claimant, and so the, the two Shakespearean sects were on either side of the tracks, if you will. And as sightseers today, we can enjoy a little bit of the remnants of that, and especially in San Gimignano. And a lot of these towers, I can think of a couple in uh, Volterra, they literally have no ground access. They would have ladders on the outside. The, the earliest ones, I mean, there's a great progression through the, through the centuries of But the uh, idea was to hide your, your pile of coins. It was um, yeah, really, yes. Just they were just was, uh, urban castles. Urban castles for wealthy families that were uh, threatened by whatever powers were out there. Mike, thanks for your call. Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're comparing and contrasting the culture in the villages and the love of life in Tuscany and Umbria. Our guests are Cecilia Botai from Umbria and Jamie Blair Gould from Tuscany. Cecilia, when you're thinking about enjoying the culture of this region, and we've been talking a lot about architecture, but we've also got to eat our way through Tuscany and Umbria, and I think Chianina beef is a very famous and much-loved beef. Yeah, it is... uh well, it's uh, very few people know that the Chianina beef is the beef that has the lowest amount of cholesterol on earth. And this is why many cows are, were even imported into the United States to combine with the local breeds just to make a, a beef that was as tasty and as healthy as the one that was produced in Tuscany and in the north part of Umbria. So that's, yeah. Uh, very few people know about that. And if you want to have our T-bone steak, the Fiorentina steak, you have to have the Chianina beef, otherwise it doesn't work. Now, I was in the town of Multipulciano, and I found this incredible steakhouse. It was filled with people who had traveled from all over the region, Italians, and they were there to have their steak, their Chianina steak. And uh, it was fun to just to be there, and there was the big slab of beef there next to the oven, and, and he had a like a cleaver, and you could just hear whack, and he'd chop off, and then he'd come over, and they'd, they'd show you what they're going to cook, and you'd okay it because it's sold by the weight. Yeah. And you'd say, okay, and they'd tell you the price, okay. And then exactly 15 minutes later, you'd have your steak because they take it in. You don't say rare or medium rare. It's just cooked seven minutes on one side, and seven, seven on minutes the on the other side, and then on your table. And I've never been surrounded with such happy eaters as when I was meeting Italians enjoying their beautiful canyon of beef. Yeah, this is a part of the culture of this part of Italy. And uh, you're right. You don't say, I want it rare, I want it well done. This is the way it is. If you like it, take it. If you don't, please go somewhere else. Have a hamburger. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the way they cook it, make it cooked, well done, outside, and really very rare in the middle. And this is the Bistecca la Fiorentina. There is nothing else you can do about it. And you can marry that with a nice local red wine? Oh, yes, you can for sure. And yeah. you got one happy traveler. Oh, yeah. Cecilia Botai, your family for six generations has made wine, uh, Tenuta la Valletta. Yes, in Umbria. Now, when we enjoy our wine, we can also complement that with ingredients. When yes. I have a glass of the, your family wine, what ingredients would go nicely with that? It depends on the wine. If we talk about the Orvieto Classico, we definitely have it what we, you call appetizers, but I would choose something from the area, like local, very light cheeses. And Jamie was speaking about pecorino, but pecorino means just sheep cheese. And you have all possible sheep cheeses in Italy, Are but it depends. Cheap? Cheap? Sheep, 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 like bah. not cheap, bear. <laughs> okay, good. The animal with a with a gotcha. Sheep yeah. cheese, okay. Sheep cheese, and uh, depending on where it is produced, it changes a lot. And depending on mm, if it's aged or not, it changes a lot. Or bruschetta, the one you call bruschetta, <laughs> that's perfect. Now, with I the, love bruschetta, but in the United States, it's always a little bit of um, a disappointment. I can understand because having a very good olive oil is very expensive. Olive oil, when it's good, when it's from the center of Italy, especially or from the Riviera, this is another area, it is expensive because the olive trees are small. You have to handpick the olives. So what you get from an olive tree that deserves a lot of attention and a lot of money, it's not very much. So this is why to have a very high quality olive oil, it's uh, an expensive item. The thing is, if you have bruschetta with a poor olive oil or a non-good olive oil, you better don't have it. And what about the bread? Well, the bread too plays its role. You know that in the center of Italy, in Toscan in Umbria, we have 
uh, bread with no salt. And people are shocked about it. We do put salt on bruschetta if you want after you've made the bruschetta, but it's never on the bread. Just made olive oil, it's perfect. Then you have garlic and, and garlic. you have salt. Now, now that's, that's your basic classic bruschetta. Now, that's when bruschetta. It's not only just the, this heavy type of bread that's important. It's also how you cook the bread. Absolutely. It should be cooked actually on the flame. Yeah. And so you get it's the, the difference between um, just toasting on a toaster and over the flame makes a huge difference. It's interesting you say that because my very favorite bruschetta memories always come with the open flame. Absolutely. This is bruschetta. Nothing else is bruschetta. You can call it bruschetta, but doesn't necessarily Otherwise, mean it's, it's bruschetta. Otherwise, it's toast with oil it's and It's toasted tomatoes. bread. <laughs> All right. Cecilia Botai, this has been such a fun discussion of Tuscany and Umbria. What would you like to add? Well, uh, I know that Umbria is very famous as the region of the saints because everybody knows about San Francesco, San Francis. Uh, I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about culture. You have to imagine that when San Francis did what he did, he did a real revolution. And we have another very popular saint. It's Santa Caterina from Siena, which is uh, Tuscany. And both of them, they're two the, the saints protectors of Italy. So it's interesting that the two regions are combined also for saints, which is uh, a cultural matter, not just a religious matter. St. Francis, St. Catherine. Yeah. Tuscany, um, Umbria, Tuscany. Tuscany. Yes. And Jamie, what would you add to cap our discussion of the charms of Tuscany and Umbria? Well, um, being um, very fond of food and wine, I'd have to go back to that. And uh, I think there's nothing better than to compare the dishes of the two. Um, Go from one little town to the next and uh, try the specialities. You can try uh, the the pecorinos of uh, Piacenza, for example, uh, with the uh, prosciuttos and hams of Tuscany. Um, Every region has its own uh, marvellous dish. You could go on a little quest for the uh, cuisine highlights of each region. Exactly. Sounds like good sightseeing for the palate. <laughs> really. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been enjoying the culture and the villages and the sites of Tuscany and Umbria with Cecilia Botai and Jamie Blair Gould. Jamie and Cecilia, mille grazie. Grazie a te. Grazie a te. Dentro l'acqua di questo torrente, così limpida e veloce, scenderò. Fino a quando la mia montagna, fino a dove questa montagna si farà pianura. Molto lontano da questo cielo, così vicino che lo puoi toccare. Fino al punto esatto, fino al punto dove il fiume accarezza il mare. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. We're assisted by Sarah McCormick, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can find links to our guests, audio extras, archives organized by topic, and discussion boards with other travelers. It's on our website at ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe, researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Rick Steves Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find the guidebooks for Rome, Venice, Florence and Tuscany, and Rick's Italian phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Italy and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.